Welcome to Outdoor by 4 magazine's audio edition of issue 44. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief. Caroline Van Stralen shares an adventure biking dream by her two brothers. Sean Jansen takes us on a journey along the Pacific Crest Trail. Jonathan Hansen provides a detailed scoop on how binoculars can enhance your vehicle-based and outdoor adventures. And Nick Chazzy shares how he and his wife quit their jobs and left for a world tour in their Land Rover Defender. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 Magazine. you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. The Dispatch by Frank Ledwell, Editor-in-Chief. Over the term of my publishing career, I've been asked countless times, what is overlanding? Before answering this question, I thought I'd share some background about my journey to give some context about how I've come to define the term. Back in late 2005, my best friend and I launched North America's first fully digital, vehicle-based, and outdoors lifestyle magazine for Jeep vehicle enthusiasts. The magazine was fueled by our enthusiasm and passion for Jeep vehicles in their natural element, whether in the backcountry for an extended journey into the unknown, as a tool to get to a trailhead for a 5.11 plus climb in Colorado's front range, or as a way to facilitate a single-track, two-wheel adventure. In that premiere issue, we featured an extensive overview of a Jeep Commander built by American Expedition Vehicles that would be used for an expedition across Iceland. That piece was a catalyst for overland-based editorials in a magazine devoted to that style of travel. A year later, one of my peers, along with several of his friends and colleagues, launched a journal focused on the subject, but not until after we, along with other peers, had begun propelling the subject into the broader mainstream at a time when the digital editorial work was still in its infancy. Nearly two decades later, this market space has evolved well beyond that small community of adventurists whose preferred mode of exploration would become overlanding. But what exactly is overlanding? Throughout my years, I've come to define the term simply as backpacking, but with a vehicle, where the traveler is wholly self-sufficient and capable of overcoming all expected, reasonable challenges that may arise while exploring remote backcountry areas. Delineated this way, overlanders are much like nomads who have traveled across this planet for millennia. In a modern context, a variety of vehicles can be used to support overland travel, including dual-sport motorcycles, unmodified all-wheel drive vehicles, 
four-wheel drive adventure vans, trucks, SUVs, and even modified medium-duty platforms. Trucks and SUVs are typically most popular as they provide ample capacity, capability, and comfort. However, any vehicle with a few basic modifications and thoughtful weight distribution will serve travelers well, whether tackling long miles on the highway or bumpy ones in the backcountry. And regardless of the tool for exploration, overlanding is about camaraderie and responsible exploration of the areas traveled to. This, to me, is what overlanding is. It has a strong community component that draws people from all walks of life in all areas of the globe and sharing their life experiences. It's a mode of travel that's unique in its focus but very human in its approach. Most importantly, it's not defined by one's wallet, but by one's desire to step out their front door and experience the world around them. My career in overland-supported travel has been broad, whether as a publisher of content or as an enthusiast whose first experience with overlanding technically began as a small boy on family jaunts from Houston to Mexico City in a Buick station wagon, fully loaded with everything we would need to get us to our final destination to visit friends and family. Overlanding is for anyone and everyone, and while the term has become mainstream and evolved in ways that may or may not correlate with my definition, its impact on how we interact with the world is unquestioned. Overland travel has helped to metaphorically and literally bridge people and industries together. And regardless of who it involves or how it has evolved, its role in guiding each of us along a road less traveled continues to drive my enthusiasm in delivering stories that will hopefully inspire you to seek your own overland adventure. Ride Boldly Ride Two Brothers Dream of Adventure Biking by Caroline Van Stralen. Cold wind and dust were blowing around as Peter and Dan turned off their new KTM 690 adventure bikes at the side of the trail. Kicking one boot to the ground for balance, they lifted off their dusty goggles and sweaty helmets and squinted at the mountain vista before them. As their eyes adjusted to the afternoon sun and brisk mountain winds, they looked out over a valley of sweeping alpine tundra and towering mountaintops in all directions. The two brothers had reached the 12,620-foot summit of Cinnamon Pass in Colorado, the culmination of a dream they had shared for almost five years. My family and I are just starting our seventh year of full-time overlanding and off-grid living. We have been documenting our adventures on YouTube as the epic family road trip since 2017. Our family is made up of Peter and Carol, my parents, Caroline, that's me, and my two younger brothers, Peter, who is 19, and Daniel, who is 17, as well as our dog, Lando. We started our road trip in a 24-foot motorhome towing a 2012 Jeep Wrangler, which we named Vandy. During the first years of our journey, the motorhome took us through every state and province and to many magnificent national parks in Canada and the U.S. Over time, we began to seek out more off-pavement, backcountry locations to explore, so we outfitted our Jeep for overlanding, put the motorhome in storage, and headed out into the wild. We enjoyed the experience of rooftop tent living and cooking our meals from a kitchen that slides out of the back of our Jeep. We shipped our Jeep to New Zealand and camped in the mountains and on the beaches, enjoying every minute of our trip. We explored backcountry trails in Canada, the U.S., and Baja, Mexico. After a few years, we outgrew the Jeep and added a second Jeep to the fleet, allowing us to travel comfortably while continuing to explore deeper into the wilds of North America, from the Yukon to California. 
One day, while fueling up at a remote service station, Peter and Dan struck up a conversation with a group of adventure bikers traveling from San Diego to Alaska. They were intrigued by this rough and ready way of traveling. The idea of living out of saddlebags like cowboys of old, exposed to the elements and fully immersed in their surroundings, sparked a dream in them. One day, they wanted to add a couple of adventure bikes to the fleet and continue the epic family road trip on motorcycles. By the spring of 2021, Peter and Dan had finally saved up enough. As they wheeled their two new KTMs out of the bike shop, they realized that they were about to take their adventure to a whole new level. This new chapter was exciting for the rest of us too, but also a little nerve-wracking because we knew that there would be new challenges and hardships to overcome along the way. The boys have had some riding experience on smaller bikes when they were growing up, but knew that they would need to commit themselves to many hours of skills and safety training before embarking on their journey. Throughout the spring and summer, Peter and Dan used their spare time to build out their bikes, become comfortable with their gear, and log many hours of practice riding. As a family, we also attended riding classes to build our confidence and prepare ourselves for the many miles of riding ahead. Finally, we completed our certification in wilderness first aid and made sure our medical bags were stocked up with the supplies and tools we would need to keep us safe should we encounter any trouble in the backcountry. The time came for our first wilderness trip together and we headed into the mountains of Montana for the first time with two Jeeps, two adventure bikes, and our dog Lando. The boys were excited as they started up the rugged mountain trail. My parents and I watched with excitement and trepidation as we followed in the Jeeps. The boys climbed the rocky hill with ease and disappeared into the mountain trails ahead. They couldn't believe the power and agility of their bikes. No obstacle seemed too much for them to tackle. They rode on over endless trails, pushing their bikes faster and faster. As they rounded a corner, they encountered a large puddle of water across the trail, which Peter decided to ride through. The water caused him to lose control, and he was sent careening off his bike into a rocky sidewall. Thankfully, the boys were wearing all their protective gear, including their helmets, and after a visit to a nearby hospital for x-rays and stitches to address a deep cut on his cheek, Pete was going to be okay. He was banged up pretty good, and his bike was in need of repairs, but some very valuable lessons had been learned on our first day on the trail. The first lesson was to wear all the gear, all the time. Lesson two, don't outride your skill level. And finally, despite the temptation to push these powerful machines harder and harder, it's important never to lose the expedition mindset. Concern for our vehicles and our well-being prioritizes the expedition ahead of everything else. If someone gets injured or a vehicle is damaged in a wilderness area or in a foreign country, it could cause a major disruption to the trip. Once Pete healed up and his bike was repaired, we spent the summer months exploring the mountain trails of Montana. This was great training for the boys and allowed them to improve their confidence and riding skills both on and off the road. By September, we were ready to tackle the mountain trails of the Colorado Backcountry Discovery Route. Peter and Dan finished preparing and packing their bikes for the journey, and we hit the road. We drove from Bozeman, Montana, across the beautiful state of Wyoming, and into Colorado near the town of Steamboat Springs. 
The Colorado BDR is an outstanding way to see and experience wilderness areas in the state and get a real taste of some of the trails that shaped early American history. Driving through the old mining ghost towns, gold and silver mines, horse and buggy trails, and mail routes was like stepping back in time. The route took us through a diverse range of landscapes and terrain, from high mountain passes and narrow switchbacks to high desert, then on breathtaking mountain trails ablaze with golden aspen trees and all their vibrant autumn glory. Along the way, we reached the summit of Cinnamon Pass at 12,620 feet. Little did we know that these peaceful moments overlooking the alpine tundra were the calm before the storm. We carried on down the trail into Animus Forks as the sun began to dip behind the distant mountain peaks. Rather than setting up camp where we were, we decided to tackle one more mountain pass before dark. We regretted that decision almost immediately, as the sun dipped behind the mountains and we were surrounded in darkness, with one of the most difficult sections of the trail ahead of us. It was a white-knuckle, heart-pounding drive that we will never forget. In the dark, we navigated narrow shelf roads with thousand-foot drop-offs, with steep ascents to the 13,000-foot summit, before descending several thousand feet of elevation down treacherous switchbacks that led to the other side of the pass. It was nerve-wracking for us in the jeeps, watching the boys riding on ahead, seeing only their headlights poking holes in the darkness. We were completely alone up there in the mountains, but Peter and Dan remained focused and kept their wits about them as they navigated the dangerous trails. When we finally made it off the pass and set up camp for the night, we all breathed a sigh of relief. After dinner and some time sharing the experiences of the day, we climbed into our tents for the best sleep of our lives. Experiences like these, though scary and exhausting in the moment, are the memories we cherish the most. Pulling together as a team through difficult times shapes our character, builds camaraderie, and strengthens our love for adventuring together as a family. There is an incredible sense of freedom that comes from traversing these mountain passes, vast open spaces and wilderness areas. It doesn't matter if you prefer to explore on four wheels or two. What matters is that you get out there and experience it for yourself. Peter and Dan have fallen in love with adventure biking, and this new way of travel has become a great addition to our family's journey. As we pour over the map, Planning the next leg of our journey, the endless trails through deserts, mountains, and forests ignite in us the spark of a new adventure, and we can't wait to again drive out into the unknown. Peter and Dan are documenting and sharing their perspective of our family road trip from the saddle of their adventure bikes. Make sure to check out the Adventure Guys on YouTube and Instagram. During the Age of Discovery, navigators would guide their wooden ships by the stars. The Age of Discovery continues today, with explorers guiding their vessels by the satellite. Garmin has been the leader in GPS navigation since 1989, and the tradition of excellence continues with the new Tread XL, 
a GPS navigation unit built specifically for the Overland Explorer. Featuring a rugged IP67 weather resistance rating and a 10-inch ultra-bright touchscreen display, the Tread XL provides turn-by-turn -turn navigation of unpaved roads using OSM and U.S. Forest Service mapping. Get custom routing based on your vehicle specifications, detailed aerial views with downloadable bird's-eye imagery technology, and sync data across devices and routes with the Tread app for your compatible smartphone. With an active subscription, the Tread XL also links with in-reach technology for reliable global satellite communications. The Garmin Tread XL is built for the journey ahead. Roam the unknown with the leader in GPS navigation. Roam the unknown with Garmin. A life-changing adventure through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail by Sean Jansen. Give me a hug, man. I launched myself at my friend Tommy, teary-eyed, soaked to the bone, and completely overwhelmed. We had reached Monument 78, the northern terminus and finish line for a northbound Pacific Crest Trail through hiker. I had to pinch myself. 2,650.1 miles in 180 days and it was all over. Moments before approaching the terminus, my friend Kayla was right in front of me and Tommy was only about 20 yards in front of the two of us. We had checked the maps at the last water source and knew we only had 5 miles to go. It started pouring rain. It slowed our descent. The three of us were silent. We could hear every drop of rain. An hour and a half dragged by, and at times it felt like we might never get there. But suddenly, there was a large clearing up ahead. Tommy reached the switchback and turned to us with a big Cheshire cat-like grin, bouncing up and down, waving his hiking poles in the air, saying, I can see it! I can see it! Kayla didn't want to believe him, but sure enough, we rounded the corner and there it was. Tommy took off running, Kayla sang and danced her way to the monument, and I was in complete shock. It was never a vacation. It was never a sojourn, or a journey, trip, excursion, or trek. It was a dream. It was something I had to do. Even now, I couldn't think of a better way to spend 180 days. Sleeping in a sleeping bag, stinking to unfathomable levels, finding comfort in even the simplest ways, and falling in love when I least expected it. It changed everything for me. Change came in the form of landscape and trail, but more importantly, I changed. And to say the trail changed me emotionally, physically, and mentally. Change inside. Change outside. Change in appearance. If there is a single word to describe the trail, it is change. The trail changed me as much as it changed elevation. I could tell you how gorgeous the trail is and try and use different words from my thesaurus to impress, but there is something to be said about what it takes to wake up day after day with six new blisters, a sunburnt forehead, and a headache reminiscent of a hangover without the alcohol. I watched the sun rise over a Joshua tree in Southern California, but I should have already been walking by then if I wanted to get somewhere before the sun made a roast out of me. At times, I was carrying 8 liters of water for a dry 38 mile section in 90 degree heat. At other times, I froze in a tent at 9,000 foot elevation. Eventually, I gained a trail name that is synonymous with my unfortunate lack of bowel movements. Moments like these summed up the first 500 miles of trail, in Southern California in a nutshell. 
Southern California is gorgeous, but after walking through what many said was the worst section of the entire trail, I was now at the doorstep of the Sierra Nevada, itching to open it. And the only way to describe what I saw when I opened that door was breathtaking. When every muscle hurt a bit more than normal, and I wished I could literally buy oxygen, I knew I had reached the Sierra. Surrounded by a whirlpool of granite peaks, extreme altitude, and a view that HD didn't know how to handle, the altitude was hardly the reason for my necessary gasping of air. It tested the hardest resolve. I woke up 7,000 feet above sea level and knew in 20 miles I had 6,600 feet to climb and then descend. I understood that at the end of the day I'd be no higher, no lower, and only a little bit further towards the goal. I averaged a sluggish 9.8 miles a day for 20 days through the Sierra. Not because I was tired or because it was hard, which it was, but simply because I wanted to. I let my friends march ahead and I continued on slowly, a disciple praying at the church of John Muir. I am thoroughly convinced after hiking through the Sierra Nevada that John Muir must have been a fly fisherman. You can't absent-mindedly create a trail that meanders next to some of the best, unfished waters on the planet and not want to cast a fly at sunset. Many sprinted ahead, leaving me to make the 200 or so miles to the Sierra a 20-day fly fishing odyssey. Transitions were abundant along the PCT. The descent out of the Sierra was slow but obvious. When my highest daily elevation was a mere 7,000 feet, and not 10,000 feet plus, I knew Northern California and Oregon were just around the corner. The temperatures began to climb and the terrain eased just a little. The ascents were mellower and the days became longer. My casual pace sharpened and before long I was putting in daily marathons and even the occasional ultra. In hindsight, the highlight of the trail was Northern California and Oregon. At first glance, it didn't hold the grandeur of the Sierra, but looking back it hid the greatest secret of the trail. Friendship. Some of my fondest memories are with the people I met on this section of the PCT. The passion we shared for putting one foot in front of the other was all we needed to strike up a decent conversation. A side note for all those thinking of doing the PCT. Make sure you are comfortable describing your bowel movements, in detail, to complete strangers. It could be the difference between falling in love and being a loner. We were generally happy but also confused throughout the Oregon and Washington leg. Every day brought new and often mixed emotions. We noticed the differences in terrain, which meant we were nearing the end. The light at the end of the tunnel was coming into focus. Some were excited to think it was almost over, while others, myself included, wished we could just keep going forever. We volcano hopped through Oregon in a never-ending landscape of solidified lava. Starting back to Lassen while hiking through the Sisters region made me think I was walking across Mars. Eventually, the space odyssey and dreamscapes were done, as the looming last date and rough terrain of Washington were at our doorstep once again. In the North Cascades, the pain kicked in. The snow-capped spires shooting skywards blew us away, but kept us on our toes. The difficulty of the route ensured we had to dig deep to reach the finish. The last 10 days of the trip were by far the hardest. Friends cried every day in a feeling of loss and fear spread over all of us. For sure, I felt a sense of accomplishment, but not being able to look over at the mass of dirty friends every morning or lean my pack up against a tree and take a nap because it's that comfortable are all examples of things that changed the way I thought about nearly everything. 
Before long, the rain began both literally and emotionally, and the trail slithered its way to the terminus, shooting hikers off of it like pinballs, back to the societal norms from which we came. I lost weight. I gained friends. I fell in love. I got sick. I got emotional. The trail changed me. She is the greatest teacher I've ever studied under. I went from feeling dehydrated and deprived to accepted and accomplished, and everything in between. Nothing comes close to the way the trail makes me feel. Bewildered, blind, and totally and completely in love with nature. I set off from Campo, California on April 13th around 2pm. I finished the trail on October 10th at 1.20pm. 5 months and 27 days, 180 days total, 2,650.1 trail miles, 2,781.16 total miles hiked, 253 trout caught, 46 passes surmounted, hitchhiked 39 times, lost 34 pounds, got 27 days of rain, took 22 showers, used 15 fuel canisters, Stayed in 11 hotels and 8 campgrounds. Took 7 buses. Got snowed on 6 times. Went through 5 pairs of shoes. Saw 3 bears. Climbed 3 mountains. Stayed in 3 houses. Experienced 2 days below freezing. And had one life-changing adventure. Since 1970, Atlantic British has been America's oldest and largest independent supplier of premium parts and accessories for Land Rovers, Range Rovers, and overlanding enthusiasts. Our wide array of Rover Genuine and OEM replacement parts and accessories, as well as a wide array of overlanding gear, including our exclusive Clearview USA line of towing mirrors, refrigerator slides, and accessories, make us the go-to choice for Rover owners and adventure seekers all over North America. Let there be sight. Binoculars can enrich and enhance your travel experience. Words and Photos by Jonathan Hansen. Do you know anyone who travels simply to move around the planet? I certainly don't. The whole point of traveling is to experience things along the way. And whether your passion is to experience scenery, history, geology, astronomy, wildlife, or, as in my case, every one of these, your travels can be inestimably enriched if you carry binoculars. What could be more magic than an invention that brings the world seven, eight, even ten times closer? A distant, snow-capped peak, an inaccessible cliff dwelling across a canyon, a shy bird, a dangerous animal, the moons of Jupiter, a thousand things can be enjoyed, evaluated, or avoided with binoculars. I've used binoculars for fun, as well as professionally, as a sea kayaking, birding, and safari guide, so I've learned a fair bit about evaluating them. Like many products, to a large extent you get what you pay for, but there are ways to ensure you get the best instrument for your needs, regardless of how much you plan to spend. The most visible component of a binocular, technically the correct term, not a pair of binoculars, is the front objective lens. 
all other aspects of construction being equal, the diameter of this lens determines, one, how much light the binocular gathers and how bright the image appears, two, how much magnification the binocular can effectively deliver, three, how bulky and heavy the binocular will be to carry and use, and four, how much it will cost. Small, 20 or 25 millimeter objectives equal low light gathering, low power, lightweight, and lower cost. Larger, 30 to 60 millimeter objectives gather more light, allow higher magnification, are heavier and bulkier, and cost more. Binoculars are referred to by their magnification factor, the number of times they make an object appear closer, followed by the objective diameter, 60 by 20, 8 by 42, 10 by 50, etc. The compromise between objective lens size and magnification is one of the important decisions you'll need to make when selecting a binocular. So let's look at the relationship. Hold a binocular a foot or so from your face while it's pointed at something bright. The little circle of light in the eyepiece is called the exit pupil. The diameter of that exit pupil is a function of the objective lens diameter divided by the magnification. A 10 by 40 binocular has a 4 millimeter exit pupil, so does an 8 by 32 binocular. An 8 by 40 binocular has a 5 millimeter exit pupil. In a compact 8 by 20 binocular, it is 2.5 millimeters. This measurement is critical because of the variable diameter of your own pupils. In bright sunlight, they contract to around 2 millimeters, but near dark, they expand to 4, 5, or even 6 millimeters, depending on your age. As we age, our pupils cannot expand as much. Consider the 2.5 millimeter exit pupil of the compact 8x20 binocular. Looking through it in bright sunlight, with your own pupils constricted to 2 millimeters or so, you'll see a full view. But near dusk, when your pupils have expanded, you'll see a dark clouding around the central image because your pupils are larger than the exit pupil. This vignetting means that binoculars with small exit pupils don't perform well in low light. So, all else being equal, a larger exit pupil equals better low light viewing. However, magnification also has an effect. Note the 10 by 40 and 8 by 32 binoculars I listed above. Despite identical 4 millimeter exit pupils, the 10 by 40 will perform better at dusk due to the greater magnification. As we'll see, many other factors also contribute to brightness. Here with my first guideline. For all-around use, I do not recommend a binocular with an exit pupil smaller than 4 millimeters. The next critical design component of a binocular are the prisms, which are incorporated for two reasons. First, to correct the image orientation, which as it comes through the objective lens is turned upside down and reversed. Second, to allow the binocular to be shorter than it otherwise would be to gain sufficient magnification. You've seen dispersive prisms the triangular versions that break up white light into its constituent colors. Binoculars employ reflective prisms, which at their most basic work on the principle of internal reflection. Light entering perpendicular to one surface is reflected off the angled surface behind it. As long as the light hits the back surface at what's called a critical angle, no mirrored surface is needed. Perfect reflection is achieved at the glass-air interface, you can see this effect by looking up at the surface of an aquarium at an angle that turns it into a mirror. Binoculars employ one of two types of prism. Poroprism instruments display the classic offset configuration with objective lenses set outboard of the eyepieces 
or in some compact binoculars inboard. Poro prisms obtain perfect internal reflection using nothing but glass. This can give them slightly better light transmission and clarity than roof prisms. Additionally, Poro prism binoculars with wide set objective lenses produce a fractionally better three-dimensional view. Disadvantages include poor close focusing ability, an artifact of the wide set objectives, and greater weight and bulk. Roof prisms overcome those weight and bulk issues because incoming light rays are bounced more times in a tighter space than in a poro prism instrument. Note the diagram how the incoming and outgoing rays are in line. Thus roof prism binoculars can be configured as straight tubes, saving the weight as well as the bulk of the offset tubes. However, the internal alignment, collimation of roof prisms is more difficult to replicate consistently and durably. Also, a roof prism requires a reflective coating, either silver or, much better, dielectric, on one surface, plus phase correction coatings to reduce light polarization, neither of which is an issue with poro prisms. Nevertheless, due to their compactness, lightweight, and handling ease, they are much easier to use one-handed. Virtually all premium and ultra-premium binoculars are roof prism instruments. The very best prism glass is called BAK4, for Barrett Light Kron or Barium Crown, made by Schott AG. Many cheap binoculars claim to employ this glass when in fact they do not. The manufacturer's reputation and price is nearly the only way to be sure you're getting Schott BAK4. And given that, manufacturing tolerances, coatings, and a dozen other parameters will make or fail to make a high-performing prism. Now, look at the lenses of your binoculars and you'll notice a definite tint. Purplish in some binoculars, greenish in others, reddish in others. Why? All glass reflects some light. Look at a piece of window glass and you'll see this. Furthermore, there is a reflection both when the light enters the sheet of glass, or a lens, and when it exits the back of it. Reducing the amount of light making it all the way through by 10% or more. Multiply that by the several lenses in a binocular and all the light fall off is severe. Just before World War II, Zeiss introduced anti-reflection coatings, which increased light transmission through binoculars from 50 to 60% to 70 to 80%. Today's high-end binoculars are fully multi-coated. Every glass surface has an anti-reflection coating comprising of up to seven layers and a total light transmission is well over 90%. However, like BAK4 prisms, fully multi-coated can mean a lot or not much at all. Simply put, a $100 Chinese binocular with fully multi-coated optics and BAK4 prisms will not have the same stuff inside as a $2,000 binocular with fully multi-coated optics and BAK4 prisms. Back to the objective lenses. Different colors of the spectrum bend at slightly different angles when passing through a lens, and if they are not brought together by the time they reach the eyepiece, objects will display a slight fringe of spurious color, usually blue, because blue light is more sharply diffracted than yellow or red. This chromatic aberration can be controlled using achromatic objective lenses, which alter the diffracting characteristics of the lens, generally by combining two types of glass with different refractive qualities and or with aspheric lenses, and or with extra low dispersion ED glass. As with everything we've discussed, 
This adds to the cost of the binocular as well as the quality of the image. There's more. Weather sealing and nitrogen purging, internal baffling, hydrophobic lens coatings, reinforced prism housings, chassis construction, plastic, composite, aluminum, or magnesium. So you're now loaded down with technical information. You could simply make a checklist of all these features and order a binocular online. But nothing, nothing substitutes for handling the instrument and looking through it. If at all possible, you should shop in person at a store that will let you spend time with different models. First, decide on the right size for your needs. For all-around use while saving weight, bulk, and cost, an 8x30 or 8x32 binocular is ideal. If you're a hunter or birder, or both like me, you might step up to an 8x42 or 10x42. I don't recommend magnification greater than 10 for a handheld binocular, and by all means, avoid zooms. Does the one you are trying feel balanced? Does the focus knob fall easily to a forefinger? Or do the strap hangers intrude? If you wear glasses, do the eye cups screw down far enough to produce a full field of view? 15 millimeters of eye relief is minimum for use with glasses. 18 or 20 is better. Now comes the critical part. You need to look through that instrument for as long as you can without looking away. A minute or two is minimum. Five minutes is better. Check for sharpness, especially at the edges of the field of view. And color fringing. Do you feel any eye strain at all while looking around? If you do, reject that model and try another. When you take your eyes away from the instrument, do you consciously have to realign them? Reject. What about brands? Choose any European built model from the big three, Swarovski, Zeiss, or Leica, and you'll have a tool for life offering unsurpassed brilliance and durability. The view through my Swarovski Pure 10x42, for example, is simply breathtaking and fully justifies its premium entry fee. In mid-price binoculars, I like the Vortex Viper HD, Nikon Monarch M5, and the Optocron Magic. If you're on a very tight budget, look at the Nikon Pro Staff. The best binoculars available today offer brilliant, sharp, true color views, comfortable for hours of viewing without eye strain, complete weather sealing, shockproof construction, lightweight, and a lifetime guarantee, often transferable. A premium binocular represents a considerable investment that will repay itself every time you use it and continue to do so for as long as you continue to explore our planet and its landscapes, history, and wildlife. Since 1948, the name Warren has been synonymous with adventure, specializing in winches, hubs and bumpers to meet truck, SUV, power sport, utility and industrial demands, Warren is the leader in reliable recovery equipment and accessories. From the entry-level VR Evo line to heavy-duty and specialized application winches, Warren has the gear to get you out of any situation, every time. Preparation is a necessity. Warn. Go prepared. Around the World Adventure how we quit our jobs and left for a world tour. Words and Photos by Nick and Matilde Chazzy. The Project. Hey, 
up for a road trip this weekend? When Nicholas pronounced those words to Mathilde six years ago, he was far from imagining that a simple road trip through the Belgian countryside would leave them to leave a few years later for the adventure of a lifetime. A three-year-long world tour, 300,000 kilometers, 88 countries and all seven continents across in a 2012 Land Rover Defender. The next Meridian Expedition. Background. But let's go back in time a bit. Mathilde and Nicholas are no strangers to traveling. Nick is French-Italian and grew up most of his life in Asia and Africa for 18 years, and he is now traveling through Europe to open international markets for a French tech startup. Mathilde grew up in France and at 20 years old left her natal Alps to live in the Americas and Middle East and is now working for the United Nations and traveling to Africa on a regular basis. Since they met over that weekend road trip in Belgium, they never stopped traveling. Holidays or weekends became opportunities for more adventures. Through the USA's west coast sleeping in a rented SUV, crossing Sri Lanka driving a tuk-tuk, or along the Loire in France by motorcycle, no free time was left unexploited. The years passed, new places were explored, but that was not enough for the duo. The Trigger In March of 2020, Nick and Mathilde raced the 4L Trophy, a French car race in Morocco with an 1100 Renault 4L. After multiple months of preparations, finding sponsors and equipping the car, the duo started their five-day race in the eastern desert of Morocco and got ninth place. From then on, they knew they had to leave. Many talk about traveling around the world. A few do it. Mathilde and Nicholas had decided they needed more than just reading about amazing traveling adventures. And just like that, they decided this kind of experience should not wait for retirement. Are you not scared to leave your stable jobs? When will you start a family? You are not scared to lose all of your savings? What does your family think about this? These are some of the preliminary questions family and friends asked and questions they asked themselves. To all the doubts expressed around them, and after thinking through carefully, the duo counter-argued. Life is meant to be lived and dreams meant to be realized. And the COVID-19 pandemic only reaffirmed their idea. They wanted to leave and complete this journey they have dreamt of for so long. Setting Foundations. Finding Money. Okay, but first, we need some money, said Mathilde. As the decision was made, reality knocked at the door. They needed to find money, a car, and set up the project. Deciding how you will live your dream does not come without a number of heavy-duty problems and solutions. Sitting at the Sunday lunch table, they put together a savings plan. Strict and fair, they were to put all the money that was not dedicated to necessities, rent, insurance, etc., into a specific and untouchable bank account. A year before departure, the duo started selling their belongings, their car, clothing, electronics, shoes, and anything that they were not using on a regular basis. Every euro counted to make the dream a reality. After estimating a rough figure of how much they would need for the three years, they calculated how much time it would take them to reach the necessary amount of savings and established the departure date. 18th of April, 
2022. Not 19 or 17. It would be April 18th, right after Easter weekend. Setting Foundations, Project Name, and Logo Let's list all the words that can illustrate our project and play around, suggested Nicholas. And so they did. Tropics, meridians, travel, journey, adventure, odyssey, expedition, horizon, road trip, travel, continent. After a long confinement evening playing with words, they found it. The project name? Next Meridian Expedition. NME, in short. It meant the ongoing motion of driving from one meridian to another. A couple more evenings of work with the help of Nicholas's brother and his Photoshop skills, and they had a logo. The project was a reality. Choosing the car. Choosing a car was a longer endeavor. For Nicholas, no question, it had to be a 4x4. Gravel roads are nice for a weekend escape, but for a world tour, we'll want to explore all types of roads. Okay, for the 4x4, but we don't want to be spending rainy days sitting in the driver's seat, commented Mathilde. Mathilde highlighted the need to have some sort of livable interior. The two started a quest for a pop-up roof setup mounted on a 4x4. Nicholas talked to dozens of car sellers, analyzed different options to procure cars in Europe or North America, compared taxes in different countries, and tried models in various shops. The final choice was between two cars, the Toyota 70 Series Troopy or the Defender. The Troopy was too expensive and rare in Europe to be considered. Eventually, they developed a crush on the original Land Rover Defender. The Defender worked for their budget and offered a range of possible options and had an adequate setup for a pop-up. That was it. Nicholas went online and knocked at every door. In less than a month, Nicholas and Mathilde drove nine hours from Belgium to the center of France to pick up their 2012 TD4 Land Rover Defender, already partly equipped for overlanding with a pop-up roof. Preparing for a world tour We need a plan. I have listed all the tasks we need to complete by departure, said Nick. Savings, a car, and a name for the expedition were not enough to leave for an expedition. They still had to plan the routes, determine documentation requirements for each country, find partnerships, launch social media pages, and start a website. The duo's professional background made it possible for them to be at ease with most of those tasks, but all the good intentions in the world do not make two young office workers half-decent mechanics, experience and training do. The duo really had to step up their game to be able to prepare the car for the world tour. They did receive a helping hand from a few sponsorships to equip the car. Euro 4x4 Parts, a spare parts company from France, who has proposed a yearly budget on Defender spare parts to be sent worldwide when needed. Sunware, a marine solar panel company from Germany, who proposed sailing boats and overlanders solar solutions. They've offered two types of solar panels, the first being a fixed 100-watt flexible panel, which was set up on the roof, the second being a plug-and-play 100-watt panel which they pull out when needed. Rough Parts, an accessories company from Switzerland, offered a sand ladder bracket mounted to act as a recovery sandboard carrier, which opens up as an outdoor side table. Mudstuff UK, a well-known accessories and equipment company from England, 
sent them a package containing new car speakers, mud guards, storage nets, a first aid, and documents pouch. Roverland, a one-person accessories company from Belgium, provide them with a water heater kit for their shower. Next Meridian Expedition, run by Bart Fluitsma, is a one-person company based in the Netherlands who has built the Next Meridian Expedition website. Their website, www.nextmeridianexpedition.live. In exchange for these companies' generosity, the duo acts as ambassadors for their brands. If you need anything or have any questions, don't hesitate to contact them directly. Fixing the car. That noise when I brake is quite weird. Any idea what it is, said Mathilde. Although the car was already decently equipped, some work was left to do. The duo had to learn about simple and difficult tasks and change the intercooler, shock absorbers, axles, injectors, and the brakes. In addition, they had to replace the existing water tank with a new 65-liter version, which required them to completely disassemble the interior. New installations included better lights, a new air compressor, a water heater system for the shower, as well as solar panels. It also involved piercing holes on the side of the car to set up rack mounts for jerry cans. They also got some help from Matilde's father to custom build a drawer on the back passenger seat. They also worked at making sure the entire vehicle was comfy enough for a multi-year expedition. They ordered a new mattress to replace the old, then Nicholas installed LED lights inside for a cozier feel while Mathilde crafted hand-sewn couch cushions and matching pouches to style the rest. The result? A tiny house on wheels. Next Steps While they are impatient to leave, our duo still has a lot of preparations to complete. For one, they must quit their jobs, then they must finalize the last few installations and administrative documentation for the trip, making sure they've got everything ready for D-Day. If you wish to follow our adventure or get in touch with us, you can find them here at www.nextmeridianexpedition.live. You can follow them at Next Meridian Expedition on YouTube or nextmeridian.expedition on Facebook and Instagram. Here's what's coming up next in issue 45 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. David Page shares everything you need to know to explore Idaho. Amy Grissick takes us on a journey to where the buffalo roam. Christy Wilson shares a paddling adventure through Labyrinth Canyon. And Joe and Kate Russo provide tips on selecting the proper RV camping platform for your next vehicle-based adventure. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorexplore.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at at OutdoorX4, and by using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures. Mm-hmm.